All right. It is good to be back. So I've only been gone for two weeks, but it feels so much longer than that. Um, can everybody hear me? No? Something's not turned on. Okay. Ah. Now you can. All right. Um, today we have started our information table back in the lobby, and we have been collecting stuff for a year. So we have back there uh, two different copies from Mission to North America. This is their Multiply um, magazine. This one is Ambassadors for Christ, and it's about chaplains, this particular issue, which we just prayed for uh, our chaplains and our presbytery. There's several copies of the MTW magazine. That's our missions agency. And this one is uh, Missions Amid, Amid Pandemic, A Global Perspective. So you can just go help yourself to all of those. That's great. And then there's several copies of By Faith, our denominational uh, magazine. And uh, this one has Roy Taylor on the cover. He's our stated clerk emeritus, retired last year and we just elected a moderator of the 48th General Assembly uh, this past week, and he did an outstanding job. We also elected Brian Chapel as his replacement as the fourth stated clerk of the PCA. So in 48 years of the PCA, we've had four stated clerks. And uh, so I encourage you, uh, Roy always has lots of wisdom uh, to share, so help yourself and uh, in so doing you help clean out the office which would be awesome um, and all that's in the hallway on the back in the back um, I will uh, uh, I'm gonna probably do a Sunday school class on everything with General Assembly I'm not gonna take a lot of time to talk about it today um, and I'll let you know I haven't actually put that together yet but we did uh, meet this week. We had 2,100 commissioners, largest general assembly ever, uh, 600 ruling elders, which is the most ruling elders we've ever had. We made a number of very significant uh, decisions, um, including two uh, on uh, ordination and qualifications for ordination that dealt with a lot of the current controversial issues um, regarding same-sex attraction and those sorts of matters. Uh, so I'll go into detail about that. Um, but those were uh, intense. It's probably the best way to put it. So this was an easy 80-hour week for me. Uh, we went to midnight a couple of nights. And um, we went past midnight, but I didn't go past midnight. Uh, the, the assembly did, I finally said, okay, I was doing the head nodding thing and I was just like, I'm done. Um, but uh, I'll go over all of that um, with you. Um, uh, one of the highlights of the assembly was the report of Reformed University Fellowship and uh, that's our college campus ministry. We're now in over 160 college campuses RUF has expanded. I'm, I'm on a, the, do all the finance stuff uh, for the PCA. 
And in the last six years, it's gone from a $29 million ministry to a $54 million ministry. That's pretty significant. It's almost doubled in size in the last six years. And those campus ministers are all ordained teaching elders. And so we now have, uh, we're on, like I said, over 160 college campuses. Um, so that's exciting uh, to see that kind of impact. Um, so like I said, I'll give you a bigger report over all the stuff uh, when I recover. Um, and uh, hopefully we'll do that next week. For now, let's turn to Romans chapter 15. We are in the fourth uh, in our summer series on the one another commands of the New Testament. And I'll be reading verses 7 through 13 uh, of this text. So it's Romans 15. This picks up the very next verse from where Frank left off last week. He had preached through verse 6. And so I'm going to pick it up at verse 7. Romans 15, 7 through 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Paul's giving four Old Testament quotes here. Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. And may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it this day more than yesterday. Thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Lord, today we come to yet another of the many one another commands, and they sound easy, and yet we know they're not. And so we pray that we would take them seriously learn their lessons carefully, and follow the one who enables us to obey them thoroughly. Thank you that today we're learning once again from the Apostle Paul. Help us to hear his words, understand them, believe them, and obey them, and in so doing, demonstrate our love for your church by welcoming one another as Christ has welcomed us. And so we pray, speak through Romans 15 this Sunday morning, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us see Jesus. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Years ago, I got an unusual phone call from my father. My dad had recently moved to Florida uh, in order to start a new business there. My mom was back in Massachusetts selling the house, and so dad started the process of finding a new church. My parents were lifelong Episcopalians, and so Dad started going to the local Episcopal church. And that first Sunday, except for the pastor, no one talked to him. And the second Sunday, no one talked to him. And the third Sunday, no one talked to him. 
And then on the fourth Sunday, he saw they were having a fellowship lunch, and he thought this would be the breakthrough event. And he found himself sitting at a table all by himself. And once again, no one talked to him. So he called me and said, Dave, you said there was a PCA church here, right? Could you give me the name and address of that church? And I did, and he went. But it was a struggle. Having spent his entire life in one denomination to walk into a church of a very different denomination. And so the next Sunday, he found himself sitting in the parking lot of this small PCA church, debating whether or not to go in. And then someone knocked on the car window. And it was an older lady, I think her name was Helen, and she asked my dad if everything was okay. And she said she would be happy to bring him into the church and introduce him to the pastor and some of the folks there so they could welcome him. And my parents stayed at that church for four years until they moved away because they were welcomed. Being welcomed can be wonderful, but not being welcomed can be very hard and very sad. And the reality is that many people have had a sad welcome story, and it's not reserved for this particular Episcopal church. There have been plenty of Presbyterian churches have the same story. And I can tell you stories about PCA churches that we visited and were not welcomed. I remember one PCA church where no one talked to us before we made it out to the parking lot. And at that point, one woman stopped us and asked us, are you new here? And we said, yes. And she said, I thought so, and went on her way, <laughs> leaving us standing there a little stunned. Um, so hear me, that was a particular incident. It's not indicative of any church. All churches, all denominations struggle with this. Now, over the years, I think we've done a pretty good job of welcoming people at Potomac Hills. But to be honest, we've had some failures along the way, too. And I'm sure some folks have a sad welcome story about us. And that's a hard thing to accept. So I think we need to review how we view welcoming in our church. And I wanna suggest that welcoming is not a process, nor is it a system, but it's a mindset. We're a family, although uh, you know, kind of a big diverse family, but a family nonetheless. And what do families do? They love and include and embrace and have affection for each other, even if they're a bunch of dysfunctional misfit sinners. They're family. Think about how families interact with one another. A good family is comfortable and natural and genuine with each other. And I think that's what people are hoping to sense when they walk into a church. Now, this family mindset can be cultivated in any church, including this one. Seeing Sunday mornings as the opportunity to simply enjoy our church family and welcome others into it shifts our gaze from this sort of self-conscious process to an easy other-centeredness. And the first commandment of welcoming others is actually pretty simple. Stop trying so hard. Take it easy. Welcoming one another is not complex, and yet it's often not done very well. 
A natural warm welcome will help us grow a gospel-centered church. And I'm not gonna go over them right now, but I've put some tips uh, for effective welcoming in the sermon notes. And uh, so in the sermon outline or uh, at the end of the sermon, if you look at those uh, on the website, you'll find those under today's uh, sermon. So all of that is sort of a long way around to today's text, Romans 15, seven through 13 which contains the biblical command to welcome one another. Now, as I said, this is the fourth one another command that we're looking at this summer. So let's start by looking at the people to welcome. The people to welcome, that should be the first blank in your outline if you're using that. Verses seven through nine, the people to welcome. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So before we get too far into this, let's back up a little bit and look at some of the ground that Frank covered last week in his sermon on living in harmony with one another. And if you remember this morning, pray for Frank. He's preaching at another church this morning. And... Uh, it's always hard when you go to another church because everybody's really nice, but they're not your people, you know, and you don't know them, and so it's always a little bit. So sometime in the next uh, half hour, pray for them. Uh, but he made it clear our commitment to unity is put to the test when something comes up that we have very different and very strong opinions about. And gospel unity looks different because it's supposed to. And that's because the church is supposed to be the place where we bear patiently with one another. We love one another. We strive to think the very best of one another. And Paul's plea for unity comes at the end of this long discussion dealing with exactly this situation. He's been dealing with serious tension between two groups in the church. They're all Christians, but one group was mostly uh, Gentiles who didn't have any of the scruples the Jewish Christians had about food laws or respecting Jewish holy days. And why should they? They've never kept them in the past, and now Christ's death means they're not needed any longer. But there's this other group, a smaller group of Jewish Christians who found it hard to reconcile themselves to eating food that they have been taught all their life was unclean. And they knew they didn't need to keep the Jewish feasts, but they always had, and they loved them. So now we have these differences in background and perspective, and it's threatening to split the church in Rome. So Paul writes, Romans 15, 7, our theme verse for this morning, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The Gentile Christians are to welcome the Jewish Christians and the Jewish Christians are to welcome the Gentile Christians. And they're to do, to do so much more than merely tolerate each other. They're to welcome each other into the church. Now, some versions translate welcome as accept or receive. I think they're all trying to get at the same thing. They're not to allow secondary issues to divide them. As Paul puts it in Romans 14.1, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. How many times in the last week 
did I want to say that verse. Um, I, I sat through oh, something close to 30 to 40 hours of debate. And I just wish I had like printed this up and stuck it on the back of everybody's seat so everybody could see it. But that's what they're doing in Rome. The Gentile Christians are looking down on the Jewish Christians with a disdainful smile of contempt, as John Stott put it. And the Jewish Christians were condemning the Gentile Christians as sinners with a frown of critical judgment. The Gentiles saw the Jews not eating certain foods, and they shook their heads and were like, that's stupid. And the Jews saw the Gentiles eating those foods and put their heads in their hands and said, it's got to be sin. And both are wrong. How many opinions do Christians today quarrel over instead of welcoming one another? Face masks, online services, political opinions about how we're handling the pandemic. Of course, we all think our views are based on biblical principles and we feel passionate about our opinions. But we need to remember at the end of the day, it is an opinion. And the Lord of the church commands his people not to quarrel over opinions. The Lord of the church commands his people not to quarrel over opinions. We are not to judge one another and we are not to show contempt for one another. Well, why not? It's actually fairly easy to do. So let's go back to verse 7 and look a little more carefully at the grounds of welcome. The grounds of welcome. My friend Nick Batzik writes that he received a letter from a couple who've been laboring for the sake of the gospel in the Congo for the better part of their lives. And as he read their letter, one line in particular stood out to him. He said uh, what they wrote was, we pray that we all learn to love, forgive, and accept each other more in the time God gives us. I think that's one of the more important requests that any of us could ask of God. The Lord calls believers to love, forgive, and accept one another precisely because he has loved, forgiven, and accepted us in Christ. It's one of the truths that shows up in nearly every New Testament letter. It is central to the teaching of the Apostle Paul. Key to Paul's argument for Christians not to break fellowship over minor matters or secondary issues is that we may not view any of those whom God has welcomed into his family as lesser believers. Romans 14.3 teaches us, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains Pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. If the Lord has established fellowship with others who agree with us in the gospel, but disagree with us on issues that are not essential to salvation, we surely commit a great sin if we're unwilling to fellowship with them. What right do we have to judge or reject as a brother or sister in Christ 
the person who loves Jesus as he's revealed in the scriptures. But perhaps he doesn't understand the full extent of the freedom that our Savior has purchased for us. Is there anything more arrogant than to set ourselves up as judge and jury, establishing qualifications for fellowship different than those God has given us? We have no right to reject those who disagree with us over minor matters or secondary issues, and there's nothing more arrogant than to judge others by standards that God himself does not use. Paul drives home this point when he calls us to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Paul speaks of God's welcoming us, and in today's passage, the apostle refers specifically to Christ's welcoming us. And thus we see this close connection that Paul makes between God the Father and Christ God the Son, providing yet another line of evidence the apostle understood Jesus to be more than a mere man, that he proclaimed the Savior as God in the flesh. As Christ welcomes us, so does the Father welcome us. And therefore, we're responsible to welcome all who profess faith in Christ. Jesus receives without distinction or exception all who repent and believe in him alone. He doesn't turn away those who are spiritually immature, and his love uh, for mature believers isn't any greater uh, than his love for those who are brand new to the faith. He doesn't reject those who don't fully understand the extent of their freedom in Christ. Indeed, if he did, he would have to reject all of us, for none of us has perfect comprehension of his will. He is our pattern, and if he embraces with open arms those who are misguided about matters not essential to salvation, then we have to do the same. His embrace of all believers in the gospel means that we need to embrace all believers in the gospel. And in all of this, Paul has one goal that he's striving for. It's the same goal the entire Bible is striving for, for the glory of God. He prays the first prayer since Romans 1. And as we saw last week, Paul prays that God would give them the endurance and encouragement to live in harmony with one another so that with one voice they might glorify God. He's not praying that they would all learn to think alike, but they would all learn to love alike with the aim of glorifying God. So despite all of our differences in region, ethnicity, origin, culture, age, etc., 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 God is uniting his people so that the sound coming from the church throughout the world is a song of praise to the glory of his grace. It is one voice singing to one God who has made his variety of people one in Christ. And that means unity is neither you need to become like me, nor is it I need to become like you. Unity is pursued by each of us becoming more like Jesus. And the glorious reality that we've walked into when we came to Christ is the reality that in him we are welcomed completely. Jesus has welcomed us and he calls us to welcome his people, all his people. The word Paul chose to use for welcome is this image of pressing into the heart. 
And when another Christian walks into our church, our response should be to press that person into our heart. We accept them wholly as Christ has accepted us. Can you imagine the beauty that would radiate from the church if that was the default reaction? It would show forth the result of welcome. Verse 9 through 12, the result of welcome. Paul's giving us even more justification for Christians to welcome one another by reminding his readers of God's purpose to bring Jews and Gentiles together for the worship of the one true creator, God, the covenant Lord of Israel, starting at the end of verse 9. As it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is written, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. Paul establishes this teaching and then quotes extensively from the Old Testament to support his instructions. We find more reasons to rest in the hope of salvation, when we read these prophecies, they come from Psalm 18, Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 117, and Isaiah 11. That's, if you think about it, it's the law, Deuteronomy, the writings, two quotes from the Psalms, and the prophets, encompassing all of God's word in the Old Testament. And these prophecies will be fulfilled in Christ through his ministry to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom of God. He reveals to us we cannot read the New Testament without the heritage and story of the Old Testament. In fact, Paul cites, as I said, every part of the Old Testament to show the inclusion of the Gentiles with the Jews to the praise of God has always been part of God's purposes. In fact, throughout the book of Romans, Paul quotes generously from the only Bible he had, making an argument that God has always had a longer story in mind for the reconciliation of all mankind. His promises have always included the Gentiles. Yes, Israel is to be a light for the nations, but that light's purpose is to show God's glory and invite people to put their faith in him. Israel's peculiarity, it's a hard word, uh, in the sense of the people being specially uh, chosen uh, by God, is not meant for its own glory, but for God's glory. He bestowed his grace on them so the nations would know and worship God. So why does that matter? It reveals the longevity of God's plan and how beautifully God has enacted it. Redemption is a long-term plan. Throughout the Bible, we learn that God plays the long game. Paul's using several Old Testament scriptures here to prove his point. Jesus accomplished what was prophesied centuries beforehand so that we can trust the Lord who revealed to the prophets what was to come regarding the work of his son. We can trust that he is able to save as he has promised. The gospel is preached throughout the scriptures, and the plan is always to bring the Gentiles in. And as Paul looks back over the Old Testament, he sees the fulfillment 
of God's promises, and this church in Rome is proof. This church in Leesburg is proof. And so Paul's excited. And so he ends verse 13 by giving the blessing of welcome. The blessing of welcome. He concludes this history lesson with a prayer for you. He prays that God will give you this hope that you'll experience joy as the truth of his choosing you sinks in. This radical choosing brought about by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ ushers in much-needed peace and utter confidence for you. You are his child. He moved heaven and earth to choose and to save you in this grand narrative of scripture. And now your response is to worship him. And thus Paul gives you this blessing, the first of three blessings at the end of Romans. Verse 13, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Christ brought hope to the Gentiles, taking people who had no hope of salvation because they were outside the covenants of promise with Israel and he redeems them giving them this secure, everlasting hope of abundant life in the presence of God. And in so doing, Christ also brings hope for the Jews, fulfilling the Lord's promises to make the family of Abraham the source of blessing for the whole world, because he, as Abraham's seed, provides for the salvation of people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue. So because we have been welcomed by Christ, we're now blessed in Christ. So that leaves us with one big question. Yes, but how? It's something that preaching professors write often at the end of their students' papers, so I've heard. The key here, again, lies back in verse 7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. The verse seems to state that Christ's welcome and our ability to welcome go hand in hand, which begs the question, how has Christ welcomed you? In what ways has Christ welcomed you? And how does this enable you to welcome one another? Whether you're leading a small group or hosting friends and family or shepherding a hurting teen or getting to know your neighbors, consider a few ways to welcome based on how Jesus has welcomed you. Jesus has welcomed you into the family of God. So welcome boldly. We've been adopted into the family of God, not only into his family as part of Christ's body, the church, with words of grace and acts of mercy for the world. So what does that mean for our ability to welcome one another? Well, first it means we're more unified with others than we are different from them because we're all members of God's family. The worldly distinctions that divided us do so no longer because of our shared foundation in the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can have relationships with people that we might never have invested in before because now they're our brother or sister in Christ. You nervous about that new person coming to your small group? 
Are you hesitant to talk to the person next to you at church? Me too. If I was given this last week, I said, I would have said something like, are you nervous about that guy sitting behind you who never votes the way you do? But we don't need to be. If they trust Christ, they're family. So we can welcome boldly. Second, Jesus has welcomed you by grace. So we can welcome unconditionally. When he saved us, Christ didn't give us what our sins deserved, condemnation, judgment, and hell. Rather, he gave far more abundantly than we deserve, primarily in uniting us with himself and promising through his spirit to be with us always, even to the end of the age. That's amazing mercy, to be spared from the rightful judgment of God. And it's amazing grace to then be given this unmerited welcome and his mercy and grace are continuous. For when we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what does this mean for our ability to welcome other believers? It means the ground is level at the cross. All of us deserved worse and gained more through Christ's mercy and grace so that none of us can boast. None of us have any ground for acting high and mighty, especially those of us in leadership roles. We are commanded to be merciful and full of grace towards sinners, which is all of us, making both forgiveness and unity a priority. We're to go out of our way to seek reconciliation, to offer the comfort of the gospel to a repentant brother or sister to grieve our own sin and openly confess to other believers and to joyfully worship Jesus together in grateful thanksgiving for what he has offered us freely. We can welcome unconditionally. Third, Jesus has welcomed you into his eternal inheritance so we can welcome generously. We can welcome generously. Now as Christians, we need to remember this world is not our home. Right now we're in the body and away from the Lord as we walk by faith and not by sight. But someday we'll be at home with Jesus and see him face to face. Christ will welcome us into an eternity in his presence. And through Christ, guaranteed by the Spirit, we receive every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So what does this mean for our ability to welcome other believers? Because we have all we need in Christ, we're free to be generous. Time, energy, gifts, resources, finances, because this world is not our home. We can open our homes, our earthly homes, to welcome others, trusting that God will use this welcoming to make disciples and add to the number of those being saved. Even when we feel depleted and weak and ill-equipped, we can trust the Spirit will bear fruit in us for the work God gives us to do. We can welcome generously. We can welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. And through Christ, God has called every Christian to welcome other believers, whether through the doors of the church, the doors of your home, or while you're out there doing life during the week. When we welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us, we bless the church, we show Christ to the world, and in so doing, we bring glory to God. 
The Lord of the church has commanded us to welcome one another. Now, some of you know I'm a dog person. Uh, in the last few weeks, I found a few other dog people. We have this sort of instant bond when you find out they're a dog person too. And uh, we've had five uh, dogs uh, in our married life. Uh, Benjamin Franklin, the, it was actually named after the paints. It's a long story. Traveler was named after Robert E. Lee's horse. Cincinnati, who was named after U.S. Grant's horse. Then Flo, who was found in the city of Florence, South Carolina, while my brother-in-law was traveling with a guy named Florian. So they put those together and got Flora. Now we have Bentley uh, because my wife went to Bentley College. And so I like dog things. And I like dog people and I like dogs. Um, so you may have heard of the wonderful book, Marley and Me. Came out back in uh, 2005. It was written by John Grogan. Immediately became this publishing phenomenon. And then three years later, in 2008, it was made into a movie. And now in the book, and be, you know, I'm recommending this book. I promise you at the end of the book or the end of the movie, you'll cry um, unless you're dead. But just plan on that. Okay, so bring the tissues with you. But in the book, John tells the story of how his family came to love this, as he describes it, very complicated dog, which is a really nice way of saying a dog that always misbehaved, but was filled with happiness and love. And so according to Grogan, while they were filming the movie, so this is three years after the book, he decides to take home one of the puppies that's playing the part of Marley. And this new dog's name is Woodson. So not long after they bring the dog home, this little puppy, they notice something is terribly wrong with the dog. Woodson walked around like he was suffering from arthritis. So John took him to the vet and the dog was diagnosed as having this rare birth defect that causes a severe malformation of the hips. And the vet told him this dog will never be able to walk normally. So Grogan told the breeders they offered to give him another puppy and take Woodson back. And after talking it over with his wife, he decided to keep Woodson and give him the medical care he needed. And while he'll never walk normally, he'll live a happy life. So the Grogans welcomed one dog, Marley, who was severely uh, mischievous, and then welcomed another dog, Woodson, who was severely disabled. That kind of love reminds us of the love Christ has for us. We don't always behave correctly. We could say of most everybody in the room, they're very complicated. And we're exasperatingly imperfect. But he wants us in the family. And he cares for us. And that's why Paul is writing this letter. He's aiming for this church in Rome and for every church everywhere to welcome Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ. That was the division of his day. You could pick a hundred other divisions of our day. If they love Jesus, they are to be welcomed. 
end of sentence, period. No other qualifications needed. Theologian Michael Bird, um, he actually started a blog with Amy Bird, who some of you know, is called Birds of a Feather. Um, it's interesting. She's a good writer, he's a great theologian. But he writes in his commentary on this passage, he says, imagine what this looks like. It's one thing to write about it and give these commands and tell people, but what does it actually look like? He says, imagine a group of Gentile Christians in Rome, perhaps a mixture of slaves and artisans, they're sitting at the back of a leather worker's shop one night, they're huddled around a candle, singing a hymn, recounting their day, sharing what little food they had. One of the slaves is a scribe and he's able to read from a notebook a few verses from Psalm 69. Then in walks Herodian, a newly freed Jewish man who had returned to Rome from Alexandria some weeks ago. And Herodian turns to Rufus, the leader of the house church, and says, greetings and peace. Rufus has not seen Herodian for six years. And when they last met, there was a ferocious debate about drinking wine. Herodian had visited Rufus' shop to explain why drinking wine was wrong. It was defiled by its use in pagan celebrations, so God worshipers should avoid it or risk God's judgment. Rufus wasn't convinced, and Herodian stormed off, cursing Rufus and his pagan drink. Now, however, Rufus looks at Herodian six years later. He's weak and malnourished. Perhaps his master has cast him out, which is another way of looking at being freed for his Christian faith. And everyone in the group is now looking at Rufus to see what will he do. And Rufus rises and he kisses Herodian on the cheek and sits him down and gives him some bread and a few turnips and pours him a cup of water. And he looks at Herodian and says, eat, for we all belong to the same Lord. That is why Paul wrote Romans. The welcome that we have received from Christ is a welcome that loves and forgives and builds up. May God give us grace to welcome others since he has welcomed us, to fellowship with himself through Christ's sacrificial death on the cross. Thank God that you have been welcomed. Pray that you can do the same for others. You should do that now. After a moment, I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that once again you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. We confess there are times when we fail to see how you have welcomed us. There are times when we fail to see the need for us to welcome others. And there are times we were much more interested in being welcomed ourselves than in welcoming someone else. So thank you for the one who welcomed people like us who don't deserve it. Thank you for the one who accomplished that welcome by bearing our sin on the cross, the one who redeems us by his blood, 
shed for many for the remission of sins, turning his curse into our blessing for the salvation of our souls. Help us flee for refuge to the cross so that we might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us and work in each of us this summer as we learn once again how to welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us. Teach us to respond with a greater trust in you and your word, and through these one another commands, draw us ever closer to the one who displays them perfectly, your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.